You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's take the Word of God in hand and read together from Romans 3, beginning with verse 9 until the end of the chapter. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because... In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The text for the preaching this afternoon is the summary of God's word concerning our justification before God. Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Previous Lord's Days, the Catechism has taken the reader through the various articles of the Apostles' Creed. And having completed that, the question is asked, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? 
In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is tomorrow? Today is Sunday. Tomorrow is Monday. But it's not just a normal Monday. What is tomorrow? Some will immediately say, oh, tomorrow's Halloween. Others will say, tomorrow is Reformation Day. There is a vast difference between the two. In fact, they're quite opposed to each other. What is Halloween? Halloween, as you can visibly see all around you in your neighborhoods, has much to do with death. The skeletons come out, tombstones are put on lawns or pictures hung on walls, and there is talk of graveyards and coffins. Halloween has an interest perhaps even a fascination with death. Reformation Day remembers and celebrates life, the victory of Jesus Christ over death, the promise of new life in Christ, and even the hope of life everlasting. Halloween is about scaring people. Spooky stuff. Every time around this year, the House of Horrors open up for a few weeks again. Reformation Day isn't about scaring people. It's about comforting people. The true comfort, the one and only comfort that is there in belonging to Jesus Christ. 
Reformation Day is not about a house of horrors, but what it really means that the church is a house of holiness. Halloween is about the sweet pleasure of fistfuls of candy. That's what the children get excited about. Brothers and sisters, as those who belong to the Reformed Church, would we not rather see our children get all excited about Christ rather than just the fleeting pleasure of a few sweets? What is tomorrow? Tomorrow is a remembrance of the work of God centuries ago within his church. Some have said that it was nothing more than a theological quibble. Some theologians locked horns. Others have said that it was really a power struggle. Some of the countries in northern Europe... Germany, France, they were tired of listening to the southern part, Italy and Rome. They said, we want our political freedom. Well, if you listen to the writings, if you listen to the preaching that went on at that time, then what it all comes down to in the end, brothers and sisters, what all was all involved, but what it comes down to in the end is how does a conscience, how does the human conscience, guilty because of sin, become clean, free before God? That's really what it was all about. And that's why we pay attention this afternoon to Lord's Day 23. And I proclaim to you the gospel as follows. We are righteous before God only in Christ and only by faith. We will first of all see how Christ redeems our guilty consciences. Secondly, how Christ also forgives our sins of omission. And finally, Christ and our faith. It must strike all of us, brothers and sisters, how personal Lord's Day 23 is. The Catechism will often speak in the we, the our, but it also frequently speaks in the I and the me. And again, here in Lord's Day 23, the Catechism goes direct. You can't hide in the crowd when you read Lord's Day 23 because it says I. Me. Now we all have to listen to what the Lord teaches us in a very personal way. In Christ, I am righteous before God. But before we come there, there's something that stands in the way. It's something that belongs also to you very personally. My conscience. 
Your conscience is that little voice inside of your head which from time to time speaks up and says, You fool. Why did you do that? Look at the predicament you've put yourself into now. The conscience is that little voice in your head that will speak up and say, You're wrong. You know better. You're doing wrong. It's a little voice, but sometimes it can be such a terribly loud voice inside your head. The voice is petite, but make no mistake about it, it can also be very potent. And you do not have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to have a conscience. In the chapter before, the chapter that we read together, Romans chapter 2, the verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul explains that all people, even those who have not heard the word of God, even those who do not believe in the word of God, yet they know something about what is right and what is wrong. Verse 15, since they show that the requirements of the heart, of the law, are written on their hearts, here it comes, their consciences, also bearing witness and their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. Even if people have never heard about God or Jesus Christ before, brothers and sisters, they know it's wrong to take a gun and kill someone in anger. They may well have a sense that to lie through your teeth is not the good thing to do. And various other things. But just like every other part of us has fallen and been affected by sin, so it is with the conscience. The conscience, brothers and sisters, did not make it through the fall into sin unscathed somehow. Far from it. The conscience is also now, because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, a sinful, a fallen conscience. And that comes out also in that verse for that very same little voice, which on the one hand may say, that's wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. The very next moment may be defending the person. Their thoughts now accusing one moment, but then the next moment defending them. You know how this goes. One moment the conscience will speak up and say, you shouldn't do that, that's wrong. The next minute that same little voice will say, oh yeah, but it's not so bad. Look it. Nobody's perfect. Other people do the same thing. So don't twist yourself in a knot about it. It's not that bad. The same voice, once accusing you, then letting you off the hook and defending you. That's what happens because the conscience is fallen, corrupt. And now, brothers and sisters, we must speak about what happens to the conscience once the Holy Spirit goes to work. 
Once the Holy Spirit goes to work and He renews the conscience, just as He renews the mind and renews the heart, then we become aware that when we do something wrong, it's not just sinning against a person. It's offending God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Sin against God, that is. You see, when you have a conscience that is being worked on by the Holy Spirit, that voice becomes even louder. Because now, it's not just that you did a foolish thing against someone in the church, or against someone at work, or someone in school, but you've offended the Almighty and Eternal God. And that makes matters so much the worse. And this doesn't happen just once, but again and again and again, brothers and sisters, and so that conscience gets heavier and heavier and heavier upon you, and a guilty conscience is a hard thing to live with. Because of guilty conscience, some people get really down, discouraged. Well, yes, we'll use the word, even depressed. Because of guilty conscience, people will also start pointing the finger at other people. That little voice has said, spoken the truth and said, you've done wrong. But you see, we don't like that. So what we do is we point the finger somewhere else and we say, look at what that person's doing. And you find fault here, there, and everywhere. People in the church don't do what they should. Consistory doesn't do what it should be doing. People in the family don't do what they ought to do. The finger is going everywhere, except here. Guilty conscience is a hard thing to live with. A guilty conscience, brothers and sisters, can even make you physically sick. Psalm 32, we sang it together. David himself says, that it was because his conscience was guilty, but he wasn't confessing his sins. So long as he kept silent, it affected his physical health. His bones wasting away. His strength, his energy, his stamina sapped like the summer's heat. Now maybe this is not the case every time, brothers and sisters. We need not think that every case of sickness or even every case of depression is because of a guilty conscience. But we do well to recognize how potent a guilty conscience is. Martin Luther struggled with it. He felt so guilty because of all the sins he committed, especially the sins on the inside, the way he thought about other people the way that he felt, the desires that came up in his heart. It bothered him. It bothered him deeply. 
And he tried and he tried and he tried to get rid of that guilty conscience. He prayed, he prayed, and he prayed some more. Hours on end he would pray. He fasted and he fasted and he fasted some more. At one point he said he fasted till his, his cheeks went gaunt, his cheeks caved in. He went to pilgrimages to Rome. He did all kinds of things. And the voice was still screaming inside of his head. You sinner? You sinner? You sinner? The conscience makes three accusations, we read in the Catechism. First of all, that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments. Has your conscience ever accused you of that? Conscience says to you, Oh, my soul, who are you trying to fool? You make yourself look so pious. Everybody in church thinks pretty highly of you, really. Good thing they don't see what goes through your mind or through your heart would be a different story. Your conscience says, who are you trying to fool? Your conscience says, you've never kept any of God's commandments. Well, yes, you try, but your conscience says, you never keep them fully. You never do enough. You could do a whole lot more in praising God. You could do a whole lot more in loving your neighbor. Your conscience says, you're still inclined to all evil. After all that the Lord has given you, you know His Word, you've been given the gift of Jesus Christ, you've been given the gift of His Holy Spirit, and still, you're inclined to sin. A guilty accusing conscience is a hard thing to live with. And is there any release? Is there any relief? Brothers and sisters, this is what the gospel is really all about. In Hebrews chapter 9, we learn one way that the conscience is not cleansed and the only way that it is cleansed. Hebrews chapter 9, first of all, verse 9 speaking about the worship of the Old Testament. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Lamb after lamb after lamb. Young bull after young bull after young bull, goat after goat after turtle dove after turtle dove was sacrificed, brothers and sisters. But no matter how many animals went on the altar, it couldn't give the cleansing of the conscience. But in Jesus Christ, the one sacrifice it is. Verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? 
Have you, remember this is a personal Lord's Day, have you struggled with a guilty conscience? Brothers and sisters, there's an answer. There's a cleansing only in Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness, the perfect holiness, the perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ is enough and more to take your conscience, no matter how guilty it may be, and cleanse it crystal clean. So long as you accept this gift from God with a believing heart. The conscience makes three accusations. Your conscience says, you may look as pious as you want, but you're a sinner. You can't fool anybody and you ultimately can't fool God. But the heart of faith says, that's true, but there is the perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ. More than enough to cover over my sins. Including the ones that no one else saw because they were only in my head or in my heart. Your conscience says to you, you could do so much more. The heart of faith says, I know, that's true. But I cling to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your conscience says, your heart's corrupt. You have, you have desires, you have tendencies, inclinations in your heart that are downright shameful. The heart of faith says, yes, that's true. But I cling to the perfect holiness of Christ who has no sinful inclination or thought whatsoever. Living with a guilty conscience is a hard thing. Living with a conscience that is cleansed in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the happiest thing that anyone could ever experience. It truly is the gift of God. And we should pay a little extra attention to this whole matter of sins of omission. There are two broad categories of sins, sins of commission, sins of omission. A sin of commission is this. The Lord says you shall not bear false witness, and yet you lie or you twist the truth. That is a sin committed against the ninth commandment, a sin of commission. But there are also sins of omission, Part of the ninth commandment is that we should do whatever we can and may to defend and promote the honor, the reputation of our neighbor. And we could do so much more to defend and promote the honor and reputation of our neighbor. We're so busy defending our own honor and reputation all the time that we hardly ever get around to do anything for our neighbor. That is a sin of omission, for we omit to do what we ought to do. Now, brothers and sisters, when we commit a sin of commission and we do something against the commandments, we know what to do. We have to pray, to ask for forgiveness on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
What about sins of omission? You have a co-worker. And there have been opportunities when you could have easily shared the gospel with your co-worker. The, the, whole, the whole conversation was kind of going in a spiritual, religious direction. It was right there. But you backed out for fear or for whatever else. And it weighs on you. Maybe it wasn't a co-worker. Maybe it was a fellow student. You could have said something at university or college. You kept silent. Or what about parents and grandparents when they think back over the years? And they think, I could have, we should have said something more. We should have in those particular circumstances done something differently. Maybe it would have made a difference. How many parents, how many grandparents here today sins of omission, guilt feelings over the fact that they could have done more weighs heavy. Sins of omission. We feel that we could have done more for the Lord in so many different ways. And there we sit with all of our I could have and I should have, but I did not. It piles up, brothers and sisters, and what do we do? Do we just let the weight pile and pile and pile? Is there no relief for such feelings? Yes, there is. For that is the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. The main texts that underlie this catechism, it is because of Him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness holiness, and redemption. The redemption is the cross, the payment for all of our sins. Catechism calls it the satisfaction. The holiness is the perfectness of Christ. No sin, not even an inclination to sin in Him. But the righteousness of Christ is all of His active obedience on our behalf. There never was a time when Jesus Christ should have done something and He didn't do it. If He should have done it, if He ought to have done it, He did it. Every time, without fail, perfectly, fully. And brothers and sisters, when you consider all of your I should have, but I didn't, there's only one way to be released from the guilty conscience. And that is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who perfectly did everything that he should have done in the sight of God. His righteousness covering over all our sins of omission.
Do you now understand, brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to remember what that Reformation was all about? It wasn't a theological squabble. It wasn't a a, a political power play. It had to do with living with either a guilty conscience or a cleansed conscience. You too can have your conscience totally cleaned. Only in Christ. Only by faith. Not because of your faith. For we must also address this fine point, as the Catechism does. Some people would easily say, I'm righteous before God because I believe. Sounds good. Sounds very orthodox. There's only one problem. That word because means that's the reason. That's the basis. If you say, I am righteous before God because I believe in Jesus Christ, that means you have just placed your faith as the foundation for your salvation. Your faith, which like my faith, is not perfect. Your faith, which like my faith, may one day be strong, but the next day is wobbly and weak. If we put our faith as the foundation of our salvation, we're standing on shaky ground. Every Lord's Supper celebration again, we admit it. We say, we do not have perfect faith. But what do the scriptures say? Romans chapter 3, we read it together. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes not because of faith, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified not because of faith, but by faith. And finally, verse 30, God will justify the circumcised not because of their faith, but by faith, and the uncircumcised through that faith, not because of that faith. Our salvation rests upon, thankfully, not our imperfect faith, but thankfully it rests upon the perfect righteousness, the perfect satisfaction, and the perfect holiness of Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone, who is, brothers and sisters, the rock-solid foundation under your salvation. Only in Christ, only because of Him, and then only through faith, by faith. Then the cleansed conscience is cleansed certainly and unshakably. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.